Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Tonight's guest is Lucy Buck, who swapped a career producing reality TV for a life of purpose in Uganda. From Love Island to raising £6 million for her charity, Child's Eye, over 11 years. Lucy Buck, who I've known for uh, more than a decade. Lucy and I came across each other in the UK. Uh, I'm sitting currently in Auckland. She's sitting in the home counties in Sussex. And I'm really excited to bring her story to you and welcome Lucy to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. It's very odd. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I know, this is very odd, you're right. Usually Um, usually I'm sitting talking to you as a funder. (laughs) Exactly. There's no funding in sight. It's all good. We, you know, we're neutral ground. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining me. And um, do you know what? I was going to start by just giving our listeners a bit of context around what you're doing at the moment. So you have recently become two months old. You are the founder and director of the Good Company People. Um, just explain a little bit behind that would be great. Thank you. Um, well, it it feels like we're in the ideation phase all over again, and it's a, a new, very, very new for me. Um, the Good Company people came about um, because um, I am um, looking, I'm, I live opposite my parents, and mum needs quite a lot of support these days. Um, and uh, I wanted to um, find a, a way of her being in good company um, and being with like-minded people. Um, and so that's basically what the good company is. It's, um, it, it's, I haven't actually really nailed my elevator pitch yet. It's still so in the idea phase. Um, but the idea is that we would have hosts and the hosts would um, um, be matched with clients and the clients would be matched together based on their hobbies and their interests. And we'd have up to three clients who are older adults um, just doing what they love, flourishing in their third age. Um, and the hosts, we would, um, we would help to set up their own businesses. Um, so it would mean that carers and informal carers would get a break Clients would have fun with like-minded people, and carers would get well would get paid well, um, and um, everyone wins. So that's essentially the good company people. Fantastic. So you you keep your promises because I've read that you you know you're going to give up this children lark and and supporting children or you know you're going to dedicate a decade or much to children but you're actually focused would switch towards elderly so you've kept your promises and what our listeners won't know until I tell them is that you you created formed founded um, a charity called Child's Eye uh, and and that really uh, in the end was all about um, stop you know stopping orphanages um creating alternatives around loving family homes and foster care um you you are responsible for transforming the whole um orphanage sector or or diminishing it in uganda 
Um, and, and that's a hell of an achievement. And I want to deep dive into that. Um, and I, and that's an incredible story, but before we do that, it'd be really good to go back to your kind of early career. And so not as far back as Reading Uni, which I know you went to or the, um, Beacon Community College, but you come out of that and you ended up in TV. Is that right? Yeah. TV production. My first job, uh, after I graduated was working at MTV. I, worked in the live shows so we worked with Eminem in my first week and uh, worked on Ibiza live and the EMAs it was very very rock and roll because you were early Love Island uh is that right you yeah we're talking very early incarnation of that 2005 Uh I did the first Love Island and we went out to Fiji and I was one of the producers out there um and uh it was with celebrities at that point it was in fiji um and uh and it it was a a fantastic show to work on um and then it came back (laughs) um and uh and um it was uh, 10 years later because tiny tearaways house of tiny tearaways oh i loved house of tiny tearaways I um what was that House of Tiny Tearaways was a fascinating show with uh, um, a child psychologist um Dr Tanya Byron and it was my favorite show that I ever made I was in charge of the gallery and what it was was it was a house which had um which was a tv set so we had cameras all over and every week we would have three families um, and they would come and live in the house with their children. Um, and the children had a number of, um, you know, eating disorders or sleeping disorders or, um, or just behavioral issues. And, um, and Tanya worked with the families over the course of five days. And the transformation that she um, that she had with the families in five days, and the difference of the relationship with the with the parents and the children was just remarkable. And it was just a fantastic show. And I learned a lot about ch- child development and, ch- and um, behavior. Um, and uh, and I'd already had it in my in my head that I wanted to um, to set up Child's Eyes. So working on Tiny Tearaways was something that was fantastic for uh, research. Yeah, because one of your TV production uh, projects, you ended up in Africa, didn't you? Uh, Well, I used to... Was it Kenya? uh, Yeah, well, I used to... I think I got... Well, I know. I got into television because I always wanted to... Uh, you know, do good. And I saw the power of television in the, in the, uh, I think it was late eighties. Um, I always remember Challenge Annika and the Romanian Orphanage Appeal. And I saw that the difference that a television show made to changing the hearts and minds of a nation. And, you know, we all, everyone, you know, got on buses and went out to Romania and, uh, you know, and um, tried to do their bit to help the, the orphanage crisis in Romania. So fast forward, um, me getting into television and, uh, you know, thinking that I could make shows that would change the world. And, you know, I, I suppose the shows that I made entertained the world. Um, well, entertained a few million, a million people. Um, um, but in my spare time, 
um, when I wasn't working on TV shows. Uh, I was very lucky to have employee, employers like Endemol who used to give me the kit I need to go out to um, to use to film um, the the famine um, in East Africa, um, which then raised a hundred thousand pounds as an appeal. So even though I wasn't, you know, helping in my TV career, I still managed to use the skills that I had. Um, when I wasn't working yeah and did that did that light the fire because you you know you have fire woman like <laughs> you know, I, I I know like you're mission you're fully mission driven and do you think that sort of some of those early experiences and it, was there like uh, the negatives of the tv world around um you know high stress I imagine um potentially vacuous potentially uh hedonistic and then actually be more mischievous purpose-led or purpose-driven and turned to your life was that the is that kind of the stereotype um I wouldn't say that I would just say that I I absolutely love making television and um I loved the the skills you learn to create engaging content so people actually cared I just thought that that skill could be applied to uh, children in, in Africa who were languishing in orphanages. I wanted yeah. people to care as much as children languishing in orphanages as they did about the Big Brother housemates. And I yeah. thought that the skills that I had learnt from television, and yes, television is, is, is a very, very stressful job, um, but you always saw a light at the end of the tunnel um, so, for example, you'd do a TV show which would last three months and then you'd have some time off to recover because you work day and night. And what was what was um, interesting was when I set up Child's Eye, it felt like a, an 11 year TV show with no rap party um, <laughs> um, because it just it, it was as stressful, it, uh, far more far more stressful than any television I've ever done in my life. And, uh, and there was just never, a, a, never an end in sight. Um, um, but the joy of the, you know, of what we achieved and the children's lives we changed kept, kept us going. Yeah. So it was, let's, it was let's, dive in, let's dive into that. So, uh, and you could correct me, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking 2007, maybe a little bit earlier, you've got this, um, you know, you've got this sort of mission and Charles Eyes starting to take form. Would that be right? Yeah, I had the worst idea in the world. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I would say that the, you know, the biggest mistake that I made, which I never, ever make ever, was that I did not ask any experts. Um, what I did was... Um, I went out to Uganda to volunteer in an orphanage in 2005. And I, that was the place that I went to after every TV show. So I was doing Love Island in Fiji, and then I went to Uganda. And then I was doing Big Brother, and then I went back to Uganda. And uh, I was um, volunteering in this baby orphanage. And I think that it was a very simple it was I saw children in this baby orphanage and I thought that they could have I thought that you know 
the organization that I set up could provide better care. Um, we could provide, you know, better standard of training. We could make sure that we had a social work team so the children were placed back into families safely. Um, and so I quit my TV career in 2008. And that's when I set up the charity Child's Eye Foundation. And um, So ma the Malaika, is it Malaika Baby Home? Did that come, was that prior to that or was that about no, that time? No, so I was working at a, an orphanage and I set up Malaika Baby's Home in 2008, in 2009. So um, what happened was, was that I had these plans um, to set up, uh, the best orphanage in the world. Um, I quit my job. I set up a charity. I raised nearly £100,000. And everyone thought that it was a fantastic idea. And the money was rolling in because I'd seen firsthand what, you know, what happened to children in, you know, in, in a bad orphanage. And I thought that, you know, building a better one would be the solution. Mm. Um, so I was, you know, I was ready to go. Um, um, and then I um, met an expert. And this expert was a fellow Big Brother producer's dad, who was the former head of social services in, in Leicester. And I sat down and uh, I told him my idea that, uh, that I wanted to build the best orphanage in the world. And, you know, he just looked at me and he was just saying, he said, you're making a terrible mistake. And this came as an utter shock to me because I was mm. like thinking, um, you know, he's an expert. You're a genius. He, yeah. He's an expert. He knows what he's talking about. But, you know, and it was, it was a really awkward moment because I told everyone and I'd raised all the money and we were going to build a really, really flashy orphanage. And now I'm being told by, as an, ex, by an expert that it was a terrible idea. So... Um, he didn't really want to speak to me after that, um, but I was quite relentless, as you know. Um, yeah, and, I do uh, know. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> let I wouldn't let our newly formed friendship go, and he, in the end, agreed to come out to Uganda with me to see firsthand. And um, what we needed to do was we needed to bring our community of people who had invested love, time and money along the journey with us. Because suddenly saying it's a terrible idea um, would probably wouldn't have, um, we wouldn't have taken people on the journey. So Brian came out with me and, uh, a, um, and a TV producer and what we did was this was right at the beginning of social media so we set up a facebook group and every single day we filmed what we had learned and the community over facebook asked questions and along the way 21 days later we all learned that building an orphanage was a terrible idea and we brought people along the journey. So it was so, and we were all bought into it. Um, but what we did realize was that suddenly um, um, was that we try, you know, what we did realize was 
we needed to prove that children could go back into families. And the only way that we could do that was by, was by temporarily setting up a, an emergency transitional home, which frankly was, you know, is an orphanage, uh, to show that we could get children into families. Um, and um, we, yeah. we set up Malika Baby's Home um, and uh, five years later, after proving and pioneering um, foster care and national adoption and reintegration, we closed the home. So Great. It, was yeah. one of those, it was one of those things where using the power of media, using film, using Facebook and continually having a conversation and being curious and being, you know, and, and always bringing people along the way was, I think, how we formed a community of people who learnt, like me, that an orphanage isn't a solution. And together, mm. we all work towards finding solutions. Because the fundamentals of that are, as I see it, around, you know, relationships so there's a lack of there's a break in relationship in an orphanage isn't it because that you people are paid to look after children um and possibly not very well um so it is just a job there's a lack there seems in an orphanage classic orphanage there's a lack of love and you know people thrive when loved and and this is the le learnings that you made and and it's kind of setting people up for massive dependency right so you know you never close the doors on that orphanage if you started it like that would have, you know, that would have become a, a total millstone around your neck as I see it. And so what a journey to go on. You've, you've fundamentally changed your whole, whole thought process and shot your whole plans up and rebooted. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's a saying uh, I always have that turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And I see a lot of organizations set up um, and um, you know, I've, Orphanages are the worst place in the world for children. I've seen firsthand that. Um, but their existence basically creates more of a problem. Um, for example, uh, the more children you have in an orphanage, the more sponsorship you can get, the more volunteers um, will come and look after these children. Um, and then there's always the underlying um, uh, problem of international adoption whereby the families who come in think that they are adopting children who don't have any families, but 80% of all children in orphanages, they all have families. So what we need to do is we needed to show that actually, if you build the resilience of families and communities and you focus on the prevention and so when a family is struggling or where a young mum has just had a baby, she is got, she is petrified. The stigma, it might be out of wedlock. It might be the result of, of rape or incest. If there is someone there saying, we will take your child, then that, she'll feel that that's the only option. But if there is someone there, a social worker, who can support her and build her confidence as a mum and um, you know then she will keep her ch her child mm. and that's what we found so many um, families that we traced wanted to keep their children but they felt that this was the only option yeah. so we're creating a really toxic cycle of dependency yeah, yeah. 
And if he, I mean, what I love about Charles I is the empowerment piece. So, you know, you, you're educating training is a big part of what you do. Um, you know, it's, it's not coming in as a sort of um, UK based charity with all the answers, you know, your, your employees, your teams are Ugandans. Um, and, and for me, that's where it wins and that's where it makes a difference. Um, interesting. Cause when, when I look at your story, perversely in some ways because you kind of think you would have been running against the government policy or mandate at the time but actually you guys were bang on with your with the government mandate in terms of you know actually the culture was anti-fostering as I understood it but the government was pro family unit slash fostering loving caring for children with with that is that a fair assessment I'd it's an interesting one because um I had this real epiphany whereby um, we for years struggled to find foster carers because they're because children, you know, because there is no such thing as a foster carer. And what was fascinating was the power of words, because if you asked a family in, you know, in Uganda, would you like to be a foster carer? They would probably say no. But if you asked them, would you take in a child? They would say yes. And that absolutely unlocked so much fear behind the idea of, well, what's a foster carer? You know, what does this mean? When in fact, in Africa, the community and the family, they take care of each other. And it takes a, a, you know, a community to raise a child. So taking in children is something that everyone does. But what we needed to do was introduce the element of social work to ensure that the, there is a, an assessment to make sure that the family can meet the needs of the children and that the child, when they've been placed, are, you know, um, thrive and are safe in the family. So what we were doing is by trying to take concepts like foster care and say, you know, into Africa, um, we were, um, we failed because of the words we were using. Mm, interesting. Because you're, what, what if, um, you, you know, you're doing two things, you're, you're making this huge difference or, and, and working really hard at that, you know, to, to fund it, you've created this UK based charity uh, and which, you know, I know from our interactions and, and great conversations we've had over the years, that's, you know, once you start in, uh, something like that, it's really hard to keep furnishing it with cash and you have to work really hard at the fundraising because you're a one woman shop, right? At times, you know, like you've, you know, the, probably the hardest thing you've ever done is child's eye. Uh, you said that at the beginning. Um, what, t tell us about creating something, growing it, and then ultimately handing it over. Like, you know, what, what was it like um, founding a charity and then ultimately, because you've walked, just in terms of context, you've walked away, you're still fully involved as the founder, but day to day you don't have as much involvement. Is that right? Yeah. No. Mm. Uh, I found the most incredible successor. Um, and um, I, it took time because um, founders, founders are just like you give birth. To your, to your baby and your baby is the project and you are very very protective of your baby and you have real trust issues with anyone who comes in 
because it's your baby. It becomes so personal mm. as a founder. And um, five years before I handed over, I met uh, a, a guy called Christopher Mwanguzi. Um, and we met in a bar and uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend because Chris, Christopher worked it for Quorum in the UK. And he had no clue whatsoever that, um, you know, that we were building a child protection system and working to build a, you know, a, a, a social workforce. Um, and when he found out about this, he absolutely was like, this is the most exciting thing ever. This is happening in my country. Um, and uh, I told him, uh, sat in prep, you know, in Victoria Station five years ago, I said, you will be my successor. And so over five years, he very gently, very kindly, very compassionately and very patiently, uh, slowly, um, un, you know, if your fingers are clenched, unclenched mm. my fingers at, from my baby. <laughs> Um, mm. And he took a leap of faith and he packed up his bags and he left the UK where he was, you know, he's, he, he's you know, he lives, he's from Cambridge. And he and his family were in Uganda and he ran my um, child's eye in Uganda for a couple of years. And then he came back to the UK. Um, and then um, that was the time where we did the handover. And it felt it felt right um the mm. timing felt right um and it was it it was you know i could not have done it with, um, without him being so patient with me and my board who were absolutely brilliant the board when you are a founder the board that you pick and you choose are the people around you are, are it, it, they can either make make the make Make it or break it. And yeah, because you, you have a great board. Like, I mean, it's I, got a, I have a, a brilliant... A you've met them. Yeah. You've met them. They are... And yeah. they're Chris's board now. You know, Chris, Christopher has a great board and he's bringing on more amazing people. And what's wonderful as well is that he's bringing on we um, a lot more board members who are from Africa, who are from Uganda, who are from Nigeria. So they have a lot more understanding of the cultural context um and um and Christopher and his team are doing a brilliant job um mm. and uh, and I don't spend a single waking minute worrying because I know my baby is in safe hands yeah that's a great, great way of describing it because I think you you know like you like all starters or founders of businesses or charities you know like shoestring didn't know how you're going to make payroll, you know, didn't know how you're going to survive from one month to next. Um, then, you know, the absolute opposite of that, you know, you were selected for the UBS Global Visionary, um, helping equip social entrepreneurs in developing countries. You know, you, you were instrumental in starting up a, a, a Alliance Africa, um, which is a collective of NGOs across Pan-Africa, Pan um, which completely transformed the whole... Um, picture and so it went from like I don't want to talk to you Lucy I don't know what you, you know like I'm not engaged um, you're, you're a small thing in, entity to you know this huge platform that you had um, 
like on a personal level, how how do just when you got things to be really big and kind of you know you got your in New Zealand they'd call it mana, but you got real respect for your space. How do you give it up? Is it was it always your life plan to like hand the keys keys over? Like most founders don't want to let go. Yeah, uh, it was always it was always my plan um, to um, to to let go. Um, it took a while for me to let go but it was always my plan because I always believed that um, it is so much better having you know national leadership Um, and um, I set myself um, um, the year before I basically handed over I set myself the task of of, um, raising enough money which would mean that Christopher would have a couple of years uh, you know, of, of income coming in from funders such as UBS, um, St. James's Place, um, 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 Medicor. Uh, I also wanted to make sure that, you know, Chris had a, a, a really good handover. And I think the best thing that we did with the handover was as soon as he took charge, I it was it, it was important that it was every single decision was his decision. So the handover only took about a month, but it was five years in the making. Mm. Um, and so the second that he became the co-CEO, shall we say, he, I think it's raining in Auckland, isn't it? It is raining in Auckland, but I am I am definitely <laughs> okay. I'm all good. <laughs> good. Um, so as soon as he became the co-CEO, uh, everything inside of me, um, was like just step away Lucy and let yeah. him this is his you know this is his train set now and he needs to have the the power and the authority and the decision making and what, what's wonderful now is that the, I hear from him and the news that he gives me I am just bursting with joy um and so, because um, you'll always be the founder. I mean, you can, you can never take away the founder. No, you, you know, exactly. You can be an ex CEO, yeah. but you can never be an ex founder. No, no. Um, and um, but the beginning, you know, I must, you know, the 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 beginning was really really tough. It was two years of living on friends' floors, um, or if if I was lucky, actually, you know, a lot of them had nice you know, sofas or sofa beds, but still I didn't really have a home for two years whilst I was raising the money. And just when I was running out of money, um, but I'd raised enough money, um, I was awarded the Vodafone World of Difference Award, which gave me um, £25,000 in salary, um, um, which was just a lifeline. And then... um, Endemol, my former employees, just when the Vodafone and salary ran out, they paid for my salary for three years. And then St. James's Place paid for my salary for three years. And I think that when people fund, you know, founders and CEOs' salaries, it means that when you're raising money, it doesn't come to you. And there is an amazing mindset where saying, you know, if you raise, if you give us money, the money goes to the project. But the but the strategic funders understand the importance of funding the people who are keeping the ship going and keeping the money coming in and keeping the governance 
and keeping the programs. Um, you know, it's a huge job. And um, I think that, you know, the funders who have funded my salaries, my salary over the years have been a lifeline to us. Yeah. And I think that you're the holder of the mission, you know, like you hold, you hold the mission dear. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was always a no brainer fund Lucy and the mission stays alive. I just want to kind of, if you don't mind, sort of dig deep and a bit deeper into your psychology uh, through all of this, because, you know, having talked to you and other founders of charities who, you know, have done this for a decade or more, um, you know, there's a, there is sacrifice. Like there, there are other things in your life that, you know, milestones, achievements, um, often around relationships, family, economic things that you sacrifice. You ultimately just do. Um, and you get a whole, I don't understand, you get a whole lot of good stuff back. But, you know, do, do you look at the sacrifice and, and do you have any regrets? I have no regrets. Um, I, I genuinely have no regrets. This, this, you know, the uh, it was all worth it. The the looks on the, you know, the the way I just 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 the amount of families that I have seen reunited with their children and their looks on their faces when their children are returned to them, or when mums have their babies back or going to see the families that we've placed and seeing the children so happy. Now that, that is, that's in, that, that drove me. Um, and, but the one thing I did learn in terms of, uh, it's almost like, um, what's his, is it Goth, Goth, is it Gota? Gota. Gota, yeah. Yeah, there's it, it. It what's always reminds me is Gota, who talked about that when you are on a mission, and if it's the right thing to be doing, then the stars will align, and the right people will come, and the money will come, and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what I discovered was that this project broke me, and it was almost as if I had to get to my lowest point every single time and when I got to my lowest point then within 24 hours some person or something would happen which would then keep me going so yeah it, so I, I think we I think you and I met in London a couple of times but I just thought how is Lucy still doing this like how are you how are you how are you functioning like uh, you know you're contemporaries if you like or you know your other tv people uh you know second homes holiday homes you they're know all, all that sort of stuff. And i remember they're all in a darling um and i remember thinking you know you've got this laptop you've got the you know you're doing the branding the marketing the fundraising the the service stuff and there was because there was times when you were you know trying to make it more sustainable and from a funding perspective and you know and that world is just tricky i mean you've it's phenomenal. You've raised over that 11 years, you raised six million pounds. You know, that's a huge achievement and hard earned money, right? Not, not easy stuff like hard earned. I mean, there may be more, you could tell me I'm wrong, um, but that's phenomenal. And it's often, it was down to your ability to tell a story. And I think that's what you use your TV skills, your media skills to tell stories, bring people in like in, as if they were almost there. Certainly did that for me. Um, you've described yourself having um, a good dose of imposter syndrome in the past. 
but I I got a funny feeling that that imposter syndrome that you may have described in the past might have um, no longer be the case. Would that be Would that be fair? That's gone. Mm, yeah. When did that? When When <laughs> yeah. did that? When did that leave? I I think that um, when you are in the middle, um, so my job as a CEO was essentially to protect the organisation. And so we had a risk register and working and operating in Uganda, um, doing the work that we did, you know, the child protection cases that we were dealing with, the funding that we needed to raise, which, you know, the the holes that we always had to fill. Um, I think that when you are in that maelstrom, you just are surviving. Um, And... And with that, you just never really feel confident at anything because you're just trying to do everything. And, uh, and you know, and managing people as well. That's something, that's something that I really learned. I learned that, you know, in TV world, you know, we, we were always freelance. So you'd go in, you'd do the job. And if you were good, you'd get another gig. And if you were bad, you never worked again. It was that simple. And, you know, and so to suddenly go into a project which was all around managing people um, and managing relationships and realising that, you know, that the pace and the energy of what you had in TV world cannot be translated into, uh, into international development because people need a break. They can't work day and night. They, you know... <laughs> So, yeah. so I think that I had my foot on the throttle for 11 years and then I took my foot off the throttle. And I think only then did I manage to have some time to reflect and actually go, you did okay, you did mm. all right. Mm. And, and actually, you know, speaking to people who are, I'm really enjoying um giving you know advice um or or helping people who are in the same position as as me who are founders because when you are in when you're when you're in the race in you there is never any finish line and uh so kind of uh yeah I don't know if this is making any sense but it wasn't until I stopped that I realised that actually I am good enough and I and I have achieved this. Um, and I've um, managed to create an organisation that I am so proud of. I've The team are my family and I love and respect them all. Christopher is like a brother and I know that my organisation is in very, very safe hands. And I know that if they need me, I'm here, but I am not um, deliberately, I am not, um, you know, chasing the team or the board because I know that if they need anything, they know that I'm here for them. Yeah, I think you did a I think it's fantastic. I think you did a, a really, you're really skilled at connecting people. And what strikes me when I look at your story you know, like the kind of collaborations you formed um, and, you know, you weren't, you're totally inclusive. So, you know, just describe some of those, like Hope and Homes for Children 
play a real part in your story, don't they? Um, yeah. And, and it's a ch- charity I hold dear to my heart, uh, who have absolutely similar mission to you, which is to end institutional care. Um, you know, from a founding story which started off as building an orphanage or, re- or certainly rebuilding an orphanage in Sarajevo to uh, many years later working with governments to end institutional care and being really freaking good at that. Um, how, how did you come across them and, and kind of just touching on that a bit? Oh, yes. Like Hope and Homes for Children play a huge part in, in the story of Child Life Foundation, um, particularly Dahlia, Dahlia Pop, who was the former um, global head of programs and advocacy. And um, so Hope and Homes were the organization that were, were initially came up with the Transform Alliance Africa idea of bringing a coalition of organizations across Africa together to have a stronger voice. Um, and um, uh, apparently um, they knew that if, um, if they needed to convince me um to, to, to for for child's eye to be part of this um so they invited me to out to rwanda and i remember um at the time hearing um i remember at the time they said that mm, sorry let me start again um I remember at the time they um, they sent me um, a pre questionnaire before I went to Rwanda, and one of the questions was, "Is you know, are are orphanages necessary, uh, or something along the lines of that?" And I said that, you know, well, you know, if there are other, if there's no other options, then yes, they're a necessary evil. Um, and um, we, I went to. Um, I went over to Rwanda and I remember listening to Dahlia and it was it was a complete epiphany for me because she was talking about uh, improving orphanages was the equivalent of renovating health. And <laughs> I love that saying because, mm. you know, it's, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm. And I had just been part of a project and we had been... Uh, improving orphanages and the outcomes were no different because the children that we were placing back into families because the orphanages were still in existence they were sucking more children back into the system and it, it just suddenly dawned on me that improving orphanages albeit improving the social work improving the care it wasn't making we wasn't making a, a a systemic difference. We were just essentially renovating hell and keeping the system going. So after that, I became very heavily involved in Transform Alliance Africa, and you know helped with the branding and the formation of the of the alliance, which is still going you know going strong today. And worked very closely with Hope and Homes, um, and it was it was a fantastic partnership. Um, and they were the ones who introduced UBS to us. Right. Um, and as a result of the UBS, that was, you know, we got funding and I got the Global Visionary Award. So Hope and Homes are an example of a charity that are very progressive in their partnership working. And that very much came um, from Dahlia 
of making sure that we are, you know, um, uh, we, you know, we, we, uh, they gave us the skills and the tools and the know-how to be able to, to uh, transform as an organization. Um, and because of that um, meeting in Rwanda, that's when we started the first pilot in Tororo. And they provided their technical expertise of working in Rwanda and they applied it to Uganda. So their team helped us develop a pilot in Tororo. And we're pleased to say that since we started the pilot, not a single child has been placed in an orphanage. Fantastic. The orphanage that we worked with has been transformed into a community hub. And the, um, you know, and the government are fully on board. And now we're just, um, we started last year on our second, um, we, on our sec second district. And we started last year on our second district. So um, Hope and Homes taught us to be a lot more strategic and show a proof of concept and, um, you know, then, and then show how the, and work alongside the government and then make sure that the government know how to do it so we can scale it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, I it's go it. power of government influence, I think, which they, they had. Uh, and I think backing the, the likes of Delia because, you know, you know, she, she was from, you know, Romania was where they had a lot of their focus. That's right, isn't it? She is Romanian. She understood their system. Um, she had visionary when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and I think Hope and Homes, you know, from, you know, fundraising in the UK, uh, but very much picking the right people to collaborate with and the right people to hire. Um, and, and so, um, uh, you know, makes me really, um, you know, happy that um, you guys could uh, affect each other in such a positive way. As, as we move towards wrapping up, um, are there, are there things in that in your life now? Because you've had you've lived a super for purpose, you know, life. Like you know, if these people out there have done a decade of chasing money and uh, you know capitalist kind of ideals, like you've done the complete opposite of that, right? So very much for purpose. Um, is there an realignment happening? Like, is Lucy gonna start trying to earn? big bucks like get super capitalist no. on it what, what i know you've got this initiative helping um like inspired by your your family and your parents um you know like are, are there not a little part of you that goes oh you know i want a bit more money i want a more comfortable life i don't want so much running around the world like what is it going to look like for you for the next few years or plus um it's uh, it's it's wonderful. Uh, um, I'm you know we get I'm I'm getting married. Um, we've just got a puppy. I um, um, our my parents live opposite us. Um, I am setting up a uh, the CIC, um, and I think that what I wanted to do with the CIC was. Um, I I found it really hard. The hardest bit that I found was the fundraising part of it because always, always having to bring money in for programs is relentless. And then something like COVID comes along and there is no money. And the difficulty is, is that this is life or death. 
the children that we are serving and looking after, if we can't afford to do this, then then they, their lives will be put at risk. So the reason why I started the CIC was because I really would love it to be successful and I'd really love us to make a surplus. But with that surplus, that would be the funding that would be able to do the community initiatives of building resilience. So very much like I did in Uganda, which was building resilience for families and communities to keep children safe in families and not placed in orphanages. I wanted to take everything that I learned to build resilience of communities and families in England uh, and beyond, maybe. Um, so more older people could stay in their communities. And Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.